We are coming, quickly approaching, the end of our study through the book of Esther. And one of the things that that brings to mind is a sermon a few weeks ago. You'll remember, you might recall it. It was entitled, Can We Skip to the Good Part? Right in the middle of chapter 4, before we got to verse 12, in the, the climax, really, of the narrative, when Esther's character shift occurs, when she decides that she's going to represent her people and she overcomes some of her hesitance in that, we, we stopped right before verse 12 and we said, Can we skip to the good part? And the point of that sermon, um, if you didn't pick it up then, I'll give you another chance now, was oftentimes in life, we are faced with crisis. We believe in a sovereign God that works through crisis. We believe in a God that conforms our hearts to Him. We believe in a God that disciplines His children because He loves them. And, And so the whole assumption or assertion of can we skip to the good part was... Maybe we should just enjoy where we're at for a moment. Maybe we should just for a moment ask, why am I in this crisis and how best can I respond? This morning, the good parts come. Esther's saved her people. Haman has been hung on the gallows that he built for Mordecai, and we're approaching chapter 8. I say that because real stories don't end in the middle of a resolution. You know this just as well as I do. In your life, when you've gone through crisis and you've overcome it, the reason you're able to look back on those moments and say, I'm really glad God pulled me through that, is because your life carried onwards. Esther's a narrative, but it's a true story. Here's how I know it's a true story. If it was simply a narrative, it would have ended with Haman being hung. There's a term uh, when we discuss literature or narratives or books or creative writings, and some of you are probably familiar with this term, deus ex machina. It's a Latin phrase, which means literally, God of the machine. Oftentimes when I read stories that have a deus ex machina resolution or a God of the machine resolution, what I, my criticism is normally that the author painted themselves into a corner of the room and they had no choice but to invent something out of nowhere in order to bring about resolution. You may not have heard that phrase before, but you've probably seen it. Most of us have seen the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and if you haven't, go watch it, because it's a delightful story about small people doing mighty things. But in the end, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee make their way to the mountain of Mordor. They throw the ring, which archetypally carries a lot of significance, into the mountain. And here they are in the middle of an erupting volcano, drifting on rocks while they float on top of molten rocks. It doesn't look good for them. And so I wonder if Tolkien didn't paint himself in a corner and he said, let's get some giant flying eagles to come and rescue Samwise and Frodo from their their destitute position. God of the machine, suddenly resolved out of nowhere. We believe in a God who has put all things in order on earth. As a matter of fact, I I don't think that a deus, a God of the machine resolution is actually out of place in the crises that we face in our lives. 
And this true story of Esther after Haman is hung, the narrative goes on. What happens next? This is an important question for us to consider this morning because in your lives you should ask what comes next. If we put this in terms of the gospel, in a very simple way before we turn to our text, so that you can understand what's being carried forward through this narrative. All of us believe that we were totally depraved, without hope of redeeming ourselves, in a destitute position not unlike the Jews in the days of Esther, not unlike Frodo in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. But God, becoming flesh among man, dwelt among us that He might identify with us, that He might be able to become the perfect Savior to stand in our place. The good parts come for many of us. If you're saved this morning, you can say hallelujah. You can say amen. The good part has come. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. The Bible says, Paul writes in Romans, that you've been justified. A legal term meaning that you are just as if you had never sinned in Christ. But is that the end of our story? Or does it go on? True stories go on. With that said, by way of introduction... Please open your Bibles this morning to Esther chapter 9. We'll consider the whole chapter, I'm sorry, Esther chapter 8. We will read the whole chapter this morning. But before we turn to God's Word, let us pray that He might give us guidance. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning humbly, ready to receive your Word, ready to turn to it, to read it. But God, we do not contend for one moment that our hearts are prepared to understand it without your assistance. And so we pray, Lord, that our hearts would be prepared in a way that we would listen to you, that we would respond to your promptings, that we would read your word and we would consider it, and we would consider how to apply it to our lives. Help us to understand your holy word that sits before us. Help us to be humble. Help us to be soft and moldable. Help us to be as clay in your hands. As the psalmist prays, Lord, open the eyes of our heart that we might be able to behold the wonderful truth in your law. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Bible says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which had been taken from Haman, and given it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? 
Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther the Mordecai, and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend themselves, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then... Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light of gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Looking at the first two verses of our passage, it's clear that the good part has indeed come in the story. Both Esther and Mordecai at this point have received prominence in the Persian Empire at such an extent that they would have, I think, been safe from the um, from anyone that sought to kill the Jews. Esther as queen, and, and now Mordecai has been given a position of prominence, and, and that's certainly demonstrated in the fact that the king's signet ring has been handed to him. He is now in the position of Haman. In fact, Queen Esther uses her authority through her position to give uh, to Mordecai Haman's old household, everything that he possessed. So he's really been lifted up from a position where he sat at the king's gate to now he is over his own household. He's his own man of a sort. What I find interesting about this overcoming is that really the problem hasn't been resolved. And perhaps you might even say that the way that I began this is wrong because there is a problem that still exists in the Persian Empire. 
Even though Haman's no longer anywhere to be found, the man that conspired to kill the Jews simply because Mordecai would not bow down to him, what we find is that there's still real risk and real fear in the land as 127 provinces have received an edict that commanded them to kill the Jews on a particular day in the year. What stands out to me about this is that even though Haman had been taken out, the mess hadn't been completely cleaned up. Haman was an evil man, and there's no doubt about it in my mind. Haman was a wicked man. To conspire to kill an entire race of people simply because of one man is heinous. I can hardly fathom it. I've said this many times throughout our study, and perhaps you've considered it as well. If it wouldn't be for world history, I wouldn't believe that such wickedness is possible. But we know better, don't we? What's the real problem with a wicked man? It's normally that they have friends. Sometimes they have friends because people want to give them the benefit of the doubt and they want to continue to stand alongside them and they continue to be influenced by bitterness, wickedness, depravity. Sometimes it's because they sought out positions by playing the game correctly. Something, personally, I'm not very good at. Not good at playing the game correctly. Some people get frustrated with me for being too direct. Sometimes they get frustrated with me for being passive-aggressive. I've tried to correct that by being more direct, but what they really don't want is just not to know what I think. Some of you guys can relate to that. They don't care about you being passive-aggressive. They just want you to keep your thoughts to yourself. The Persian Empire at this time had developed a sentiment that was anti-Semitic. I think there were people that marked their calendar. There were people in the Persian Empire when Haman's decree first went out through the land, they marked their calendar as this is the day to finally get rid of the Jews. Those people that we inherited when we, when we conquered the Babylonians and when we became the Persian Empire all along, to get rid of them, to eradicate them. And we see that because Esther still fears. Look at verse 3. As she comes to the king and she begins to approach him, she still fears the safety of her kindred. This is her concern, even though she's queen, even though her dad or her cousin, her adopted dad, Mordecai, has been lifted up to a position where he would be safe. She's still afraid for her people. She's still concerned for them. The good part has come, but the wicked sentiment still lingers. Consider Hitler. Is it enough that Hitler no longer exists? Or is there still a problem in anti-Semitic rhetoric? Is there still a problem in prejudices that we put on people without really any explanation or cause? These problems still exist in the world today because the world is still living in a fallen condition until the day that we can be reunited with Christ, until His kingdom will reign on earth. These problems will continue to exist through the last days. We know this. The Bible encourages us to stay strong, to endure. I believe it even gives us a mandate to stand up for those who cannot defend themselves. But most importantly, 
The Bible gives us a commission to go into all of the world to teach and to make disciples. Because the solution to this great problem is the lordship of Christ in the hearts of every person that dwells on earth. We may not see that in full completion until Christ's kingdom comes. Now, if you're post-trib and you disagree, or post, uh, post-millennial, then you disagree with me. And we can laugh about that later. But ultimately, we can all agree on this. The solution for a wicked world isn't legislation. It isn't education. It's transformation that can only come through the work of God in our hearts. The only way such wickedness will truly be eradicated, ideas of bitterness and deception and deceit, the only way the world will ever be redeemed from these things is if we turn to God. And as a matter of fact, if we recognize that the story goes on, that the enemy persists even after the, the, the figurehead for the enemy is eradicated. Haman's gone. He might be the figurehead, but the sentiment still exists and the enemy still persists. Looking at verses 3 through 8, what we find in Esther is it's really a pretty big character shift as a matter of fact. She goes from being diplomatic and cautious and and even waiting for the right time to look at verse 3. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman. I've done this several times when we consider Christ our King. What does it mean whenever we look at a wicked world and we want to see the lost become saved? Are we willing to throw ourselves at the King's feet to weep? To weep means that we are genuinely moved by it, by by people's lost position, people that would be wicked, people that think that they are in the right, even people in church who have not overcome a, a, a significant portion of sanctification that bitterness could be laid astray from them, that rebellion would be laid astray from them. Are we truly moved to weep for those people? I have to admit that even I struggle with this, especially the more personal it becomes. It's easy for me to weep about the unknowns, the people that I haven't met and the people that I haven't seen that are doing deplorable acts because they do not know better and because they need Christ. It's easy for me to say, send someone to those people. But when I bring it closer to home and I realize that the the bitterness is my hypothetical wife, not my real wife, because my wife is never, ever bitter, but my hypothetical wife that sometimes gets out of sorts. I get frustrated with a bad attitude. Bring it closer to home. In the church, when I see people who, who are so fixated on what they think is right that they would literally stand in the way through bitterness of what God is doing because they want... I'm not moved to tears for those people. And this is a sin problem inside of me. That's my own pride. Esther was moved to tears as she approached the king. I think also we should be moved to tears as we consider wickedness in the lives of the people that we love, that we should weep for them as we see what they are doing. If you are more mature spiritually than someone, then you should weep that their maturity would develop, that they would be made mature, that they would grow up in Christ. Second, Esther didn't just weep, but she fell at his feet, a sign of humility. 
She fell at his feet, bowing and recognizing that he was the one who had the power to set these things in order. Certainly, Esther was doing this to an earthly king, but can we not say that we are to do the same thing to a heavenly king that holds all things together? Can we not say that we should fall at the feet of Christ as we seek the salvation of those that we love? She pleaded. She pleaded. I think some of you are closer to this than others. And I pray that if you are not close to this, that you will consider the positions of those who are closer. Some of us don't have family backgrounds where we have, everyone is saved. Some of us have mothers and grandparents that we love dearly that raised us, that we honor and that we respect, who have not professed Christ. I can say with confidence that we've done everything that we can, at least for the time being, and that we'll try to be obedient so long as this position stays, and we will rejoice in the day whenever they do profess Christ. But if they do not, they are in a position that is worse off than the Jews, prepared to be executed by the wickedness that has spread throughout the Persian Empire, an empire spanning all the way from Ethiopia to India, the known world. If they will not profess Christ, no matter how much we love them, they will go to hell. Because that is the deserved eternal place for all people that have not put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. An act that requires God to move in their hearts. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But if we believe that, do we not plead with God? Do we not plead with God that the immature would be made mature? Do we not plead with God that revival would take place in our hearts? Do we not look at ourselves as unable to weep at destitute positions, but instead responding with bitterness with bitterness? Is it Romans chapter 12 that says, Do not repay evil with evil, but stir one another up. That image that Paul uses in Romans chapter 12, to stir one another up, isn't to... Kill people with love, as we so often say, but it is literally to reinvigorate a fire that has gone out in them because they have not consistently sought the Lord. To stir up the embers that it would turn back into a flame, that they would seek God, that transformation would continue to take place in their life. Do we not plead with God that He would do the work that we cannot do? That as we are faithful to Him, that He will move in the hearts of the people that we care about, that we've been entrusted with, because we also believe that those same people have been put in our life for a reason, that they are a part of our life because God has decreed it. Haman's ideas may persist, but there is a solution. King Ahasuerus, responding to Queen Esther, says, Behold, this is verse 7, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. I'm tempted when bringing this to life in my own head to imagine that King Ahasuerus is kind of fed up with the situation. He's kind of saying, I've done all I can do and you're asking me to do more. But I actually think that's the wrong way to do it. That's the first way I read it. Came back and read it a second time. Perhaps you read it the same way that I did and you can try this on for size. 
I think what King Ahasuerus is saying is, I support you. I've protected the Jews, I've hanged Haman, and I've given you the authority that you need to overcome this. I cannot break my own law in taking an irreversible edict and simply reversing it. You'll have to do something else. And I've given you that authority. I've given Mordecai my signet ring. He can do the same thing that Haman did. You can send out through a land, through the land, an edict of your own. And Haman's plan is brilliant. As we look at it, really what Haman, I'm sorry, what Mordecai writes, I keep getting those names mixed up. I, I'm sorry if you're having a hard time following me. You'll have to Listen to what I mean and not what I say. Haman's pl- Mordecai's plan is brilliant. It's brilliant. He perfectly parallels the edict that Haman had sent out before. Saying that the king allowed the Jews, verse 11, who are in every city, look at what they can do. They can defend their lives. They can destroy, they can kill, they can annihilate any armed force, any people or province of any prov- people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. If you jumped back to chapter three of Esther and you read what Haman had originally had written, this is the exact same thing. But what's different between these two edicts that go out? It's actually at the beginning of verse 11. I skipped over it. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. This is the brilliance of all of the king's scribes that were gathered to to write this, to refute the edict that Haman had sent out. He gave the Jews the ability to gather in order to defend themselves. There's an Australian proverb that goes something like, if you want to go far, go together. If you want to go fast, go by yourself. We're stronger together. The church is stronger together. When we really understand what God has given us in blessing us with the church, when we understand what is written in Ephesians chapter, it's either chapter 3 or chapter 4, when we remark that the angels marveled at the creation of the church, The angels, the angelic beings who stand and are able to see what is going on because they're celestial, had no idea what God was going to do. Jesus came. He died on a cross. The church began. And the angels marveled. What's so spectacular about the church? What's so spectacular that makes Hebrews 10.4 stand out that we are not to forsake the gathering or the assembly of the saints as some do? What's so remarkable about the church coming together as we live in a world that does not belong to a God? As we live in a world that is depraved? As we live in a world that is ruled by wickedness? As we live in a world where destitute and deplorable things take place. As we live in a world where our hearts are moved with contrition, as we look at children who are put into bondage, as we look at slavery that is in its highest in the world today, as we look at those that are addicted to drugs and cannot come out of it by their own means, as we look at how truly wicked the world is and we say we do not belong to it, we find the beauty in the church. Because going out there is tough. It's tough. It's difficult to go into the world and not have my heart calloused. 
I think oftentimes the reason I am not able to weep for those that deserve weeping is because I've seen it so much in order to protect myself from it. I simply allow myself to get angry. I made a joke towards Miss Kathy uh, this morning. She went and saw The Sound of Freedom, which you know I recommended to all of you, and I asked her if she cried in public. Miss Kathy's a Yankee, and we forgive her for that because God has called together in the assembly of the saints, both Jews and Greeks and Scythian. And so even Yankees are allowed to be a part of the church. She said she didn't cry, she just got mad. And I said, typical Yankee. So out of touch with your emotions that you have to cover it up with anger. I believe oftentimes the reason I'm not able to weep for those that deserve weeping is simply because I've protected myself from my own emotions by allowing it to turn into bitterness myself. We need the church. We need to be moved by the people that we sit among as we sing songs and our hearts have become callous throughout the week that we are moved because of the way that God is moving in their lives to be reminded that we are here for a reason. The scary position that some of our church members find themselves in, certainly it has been a year of sickness, is the tiredness and the fatigue that I see in the faces of those who are not able to gather with us, those who are imprisoned in their own home in many ways. They need you, church. They need you as much as I do. They need your fellowship. They need to be encouraged by you. They need to be lifted up by you in your prayers. They need to know that they're lifted up by you. Send them a card. Send them a text. Call them. God forbid, go visit them. Sit with them. Community is our gift. If our story simply ended in a deus ex machina resolution... At the moment of salvation, we would simply be transported up to heaven immediately and await the day that the earth would be redeemed, purified with fire and made new that we could stand in our physical bodies, our new physical bodies, enjoying the blessing of watching animals on earth, lions sitting with lambs, a time of peace that we will marvel at. That didn't happen when I was saved. Do you doubt my salvation because of it? Not any more than you doubt your own, right? God's left us here for a reason, and he's given us a gift through the church. Oftentimes, I believe the most forsaken or for granted blessing of the church is fellowship. You'll recall that at the beginning of this year, we introduced what would be our ministry theme. And I haven't made reference to it in a while, but I pray that you wouldn't forget. Our ministry theme this year has simply been worship. The word worship. How we worship God in all that we do. How we worship Him in our giving. How we worship Him in our singing. How we worship Him in hearing the word preached. How we worship Him in our fellowship. Our fellowship is a key ingredient. Because it's through our fellowship that we really get to experience this blessing. And we see it in our text this morning as Mordecai writes this decree that the Jews could gather together and defend their lives. 
Living in a world that does not belong to God as the people of God, this is our blessing. The church is the outpost for the kingdom of God. It is in many ways an embassy for a foreign entity that does not belong on this land. It is sovereign in the fact that God is the only one that rules our conduct. No legislation passed can infringe on us. And even if it did, if it violated God's laws or decrees, we could rebel against it and still be morally true because we serve a king, because we do not belong to this world, because we consider ourselves resident aliens. I'm not making that up. I think the ESV translators took resident aliens as the literal translation in 1 Peter. I'll have to check on that, but I'm pretty sure it says resident aliens. Maybe it's NIV that does that. Anyways, do we take for granted the gathering of the church? How do we know if we take it for granted or, or not? Church begins at 1045. If you show up at 1045 and you leave immediately after the sermon, perhaps you take for granted the gathering of the church. You don't, you, you, you don't come to church simply to hear me speak. If you do, if that's the only reason you come to church, honestly, if I was in your position, I'd find a different church because I think there's better preachers than me. You come to church to be encouraged by the saints, to serve the church, to be a part of the kingdom, to encourage the saints yourself. The preaching of the word is only one part. It's an important part. It's not going away. It's the central part. It's how God saves people. We believe all of these things to be true, but it's also through fellowship that the saints are equipped. Discipleship takes place in personal relationships. Now, I've strayed away from the text just a little bit, and I'm not trying to get on my soapbox. Let's move back to the text. The Jews were given the ability to gather in order to defend themselves And to our modern minds, it might seem strange that Mordecai writes that they could destroy, kill, annihilate, even women and children. Let me just comment on that briefly. This text was written, it records events that were taking place in the 5th century. The law of the time, you've heard of Hammurabi's code, you've heard it written in Leviticus, even an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is justice, and that's not just a vindictive or vigilante way of viewing the world. That's actually a way to protect people from being punished beyond what they actually did. If somebody slaps me, I can't take out their teeth. That would be disproportionate. This is a way of justice. If anyone comes to attack the Jews, they could be attacked at equal level. Our modern minds might think that unfair or cruel. Personally, I kind of like it. I believe that's also my sin. If God could have his way and transform every heart, if every person could be transformed, if every person could be faced with what it means to be depraved, to inherit the sin of their father, if every person could understand that they are in such a desperate state of needing God and have the humility enough to seek him after that, I think that would really be God's justice. His great mercy pouring out on all of these people, 
But we find something remarkable, not just in the Jews' key to success in gathering, but in the response that came. As we come down to verse 15, we see the most remarkable transformation that we could observe in the book of Esther. Not just Esther herself going from an immature young woman to a bold and uh, vociferous force. Look at verse 15. Mordecai, who previously sat at the king's gate in sackcloth and ashes, goes out from the king's presence in royal robes of blue and white with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Remember, when the first edict went throughout the land, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay with sackcloth. But here, as Mordecai's command by authority of the king goes throughout the land, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. We can't seek to solve every problem with our own rhetoric, with our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own solutions. Because this is the marvel. The text goes on. Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. I read that and I ask myself, where did this fear fall from? We've noted that Esther makes no mention of God's name, but he's present at every turn. He's the one that gave Esther her position of prominence. He's the one that... um, even prepared the timing as Esther was hesitant to tell the king what was needed and instead continued to invite him for dinner and everything else until the time was right when Mordecai had been honored, all because the king had stayed up late one night because God had decided that he would have a sleepless night. God is present in every turn of Esther. Indeed, he is present in every turn of our lives. And he is present as the fear of Christ falls on the hearts of a wicked nation and a wicked people. I believe God can move in tremendous ways. I believe that there is power as the word is proclaimed. I believe that there is even an attractional force as we declare the gospel week to week, day to day. People have a great need and they know it. People are dissatisfied with life. They're frustrated with the situations that they find themselves in. The gospel is the answer. This transformation that takes place is worth remarking at because of the incredible transformation and redemption that takes place in the life of Mordecai. He goes from an unremarkable position to a, to a position of great authority. In fact, he is made second only to the king in the Persian Empire. He reminds me of Joseph from the book of Genesis. From the bottom up. No one is able to do this except God. God is the one who takes weeping, fasting, and lamenting and turns it into rejoicing, light, gladness, joy, and honor. 
I'll say again, sometimes we want to skip to the good part and simply rush to gladness, joy, and honor. In fact, I believe one of the places this is most seen is that in contemporary worship music, most of the songs that we sing are joyful, upbeat. Let us not forget that at least two-thirds of the songs that we find recorded in Scripture through the Psalms, the Book of Lamentations, are sad songs. They call us to weep for our own sinfulness. They call us to face the truth in this world, not to simply butter it up and and put a flower on it and say that it's all good, but to admit that this world needs Christ more than it's ever needed Christ before. And that's saying something. Because the world has only ever needed Christ. The wonderful theme of reversal in the book of Esther carries forward even after the good part. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 3 through 5. Because this theme of reversal is present not just in the book of Esther, but indeed, I believe, is the theme of the whole Bible. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's easy to look out into the world and to see people that have positions of prominence like Haman. To see people who have achieved power and authority and, and seem to have things that belong to those that are good. And the psalmist indeed even asks this question. Psalm 50 is a good example of this, as a matter of fact. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be extemporaneous this morning, but it's just a thought that came through my mind. Psalm 50 is a great example of this. As we look at those that have positions of power and we ask God, why are the wicked being exalted while those that are righteous and seek you are put in lowly positions? I believe it's all right that God leaves us there for a moment because He promises. He promises through redemption, through the prophecy in Isaiah, that God will set those who are high and mighty low, and He will exalt those who are humble. That righteousness will prevail. That if we are faithful to the Word of God and do not acquiesce to the demands of a world that that wants us to be more gentle on the issue of sin, that wants us to be more accepting of depravity, that wants us to embrace wickedness among us, if we will be faithful to the Lord, He will be faithful to us. That's not some prosperity gospel. That is the truth. That is the Word of God coming at us. That if we will declare His name before all things, if we will humble ourselves and admit that we cannot seek Him without His aid, if we will seek the Spirit's umption as we sit with our friends and declare truth, that God has the ability to move. So often we quench the Spirit of God simply by our fear of what people would think of us. Let God work in you. I've gone through my points quickly this morning because I know some of you are anxious to head to the fellowship hall and eat. I'm thankful for that because I've just preached that fellowship is a part of what the church belongs to. And so I believe that that's an important part of what the church will do. If you're visiting with us, let me encourage you to be a part of that fellowship. 
Let me encourage you to come and enjoy some of the food that has been prepared. It has been prepared prayerfully for your attendance. Let me run through my points real fast just for the sake of clarity. Just because the good part has come in our lives and we have been saved, we must be humble enough to admit that the enemy still persists in our world. That should motivate you to take action. Second, our community is our gift. Let me exalt you this morning to depend on the people that we sit with, to ask them for help and for prayer. And finally, let us not make an idol of community. While it is a blessing of God, while it is true that the covenants establish us as a covenant people with a relationship to one another, just as we have a relationship with the one true God, community is not our redeemer. Perhaps you're here because you wanted some socialization. God is our only redeemer. Community is a blessing from him. It is a gift, but God is our redeemer. He's the one that redeemed Mordecai. He's the one that redeems the Jews. He's the one that sets this story in motion. And while there is a tremendous theme of reversal in this passage, it is only by the divine hand of God that any of these things are able to take place. So too, I pray. If you've been led astray from God, If your heart has become weary and calloused to the commission that has been given to you by the gospel, I pray that God would do what only God can do and move in your heart. If you have taken for granted the assembly of the saints, I pray that God would move in your heart and that you would be encouraged by our assembly this morning. I pray also for myself, as I pray for all of us, that we would not repay evil for evil, but that we would seek to stir one another up. The gospel really is a simple message. There's so much depth to it, and I think it's so easy for us to to get away from all of the things that we could possibly discuss. I made a joke about being post-millennial or pre-millennial. I made that joke last week and I said I regretted making it from the pulpit. And that's still true. I regret making that joke from the pulpit. It's still funny. My point's this. There's so many things that we could become distracted by when the gospel really is a simple message. God created the world and everything in it, knowing that it would become as wicked as it is today. And he didn't do that by mistake, but he created the world knowing that it would become as wicked as it is today because he knew you before you were created. As a dad, I marvel at that. As a dad, I wonder what it's like to love my children before I ever saw them. It's not fathomable. It's not possible. Could you imagine me as a 14-year-old boy loving Charlotte the way that I love her today? I can't. But God did. God knew that you would be born, and He knew the life that you would live, and He knew the people that you would meet, and and He loved you so much, the idea of you, that He created it anyway. With a plan to redeem us, 
with a plan to set all things in motion. He sent His Son to die on a cross that He would become the only substitutionary payment that is possible, the only perfect payment available to pay the ultimate price of sin in our lives, the depravity, the debt that we owe, something that we cannot overcome. No amount of good works will cover it up. He sent His Son to die so that He would be the payment for our own debt. So that everyone that would place their faith in Him would have everlasting life. I said if you come to church to hear a preacher, you're better off finding a different church because there's better preachers. Let me say this too. You might find someone who can preach a better message than I do. But I promise you'll never find someone who can preach a better gospel than I do because there's nothing better than the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts this morning. Make us humble before you, Lord. Move in us. Help us to be sensitive to the Spirit that we would know when you are prompting us to care for one another, to be so entrenched in your word that your word echoes in our mind, that in our conversations your truth would be on our lips. God, I pray that you would make us a people, a people of peculiar interest in our community, that people would see our love for you and they would remark that that could only come from you, that they would see the divine in the way that we love one another, the way that we fellowship, the way that we spend time with one another, that our testimony would be protected. Most of all, Lord, I pray for those who have not placed their faith in you. God, I pray that you would move in their hearts. I pray that you would give them faith, Lord. Faith to trust that you are the only one that you would save those that we love as you have saved us already. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.